companies that can generate revenue quickly in a market that may not seem that big will probably end up doing better than companies that take a very long, slow approach to what is a very big market. Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC 10X podcast and today we have James Springle with us. James is a partner at Portfolio Ventures and a co-host of Riding Unicorns podcast, a top 50 podcast in entrepreneurship in over 50 countries. In this episode, we talk about James' story and how he started investing, the UK startup ecosystem, the different flavors of venture capital, how they add value to portfolio companies and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey James, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, to start things off, can we first have your story and how you started investing? Yeah, sure. So um, I was a founder previously. So I worked for a couple of tech startups and then I founded a business in 2015 that I ran for four and a half years. Um, we raised money, but realized that we weren't going to be a unicorn business. So decided to scale it back and we were acquired for next to nothing in a in a very small deal at the end of, of sort of four and a half years of, of of doing that and then from there I moved to the investor side I had been doing some very small investments via crowdfunding and that then led to me doing a small bit of angel investing from some proceeds that I'd generated from the crypto run in 2017-2018 and then um, that led to me launching my first VC fund um, so I, I took a maybe slightly unconventional route into venture um, but one that hopefully has given me some broad experience that is very helpful. Absolutely. So when was it uh, when you like started your own venture firm? So I uh, started working on it in May 2020. And the fund actually launched in January 2021. It was a small micro fund. I was one of three partners that had co-founded the business. And I stayed for Fund One, and inve we invested in eight companies, of which three, I think, have gone on to raise Series A uh, and are, are looking like they're going to perform very well. That's great. Uh, so you knew your par partners from beforehand when you came together to start this fund, or what was it like meeting your partners there? Yeah, so they actually, uh, we we met as we were thinking about launching a fund. I was sort of not really in the mindset of launching a fund. I was just at the start of my journey. But uh, I met two two brothers, Marcus and Adrian, who were looking at launching a fund and wanted someone with founder experience. And so that's how I got involved in Love Ventures. Um, and it was a great experience to, you know, I was not anticipating launching a fund so quickly, but um, it was good to to get involved in something like that and get started with my investment career. Absolutely. And now I believe you've moved on and started working with Portfolio Ventures. So can you tell us a bit more about your focus here? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I left Love Ventures and I joined Portfolio Ventures. And we're a UK fund that specializes in fintech and tech and SaaS. Um, 
although we can invest beyond those sectors, what we're trying to do is invest into companies where we think the UK has a particular advantage. Because we are UK only investors, it's important that we um, that we focus on areas where where there is potentially some strategic advantage. Um, so we we invest from pre seed all the way up to Series A, um, and yeah, so far I think across funds one and two, we have close to forty businesses in the portfolio, and we're just closing fund three as we record this. That's great, James. And you're also a podcast host. It's called Riding Unicorns, uh, a top 50 entrepreneurship podcast in, I believe, a good many countries, right? Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about what made you start this podcast in the first place? And then what has been the impact of the podcast, the conversations you've had there? And number three, how you have grown the podcast over time? Yeah, absolutely. So I started the podcast in October 2020. So I was uh, in the process of launching that first fund. Um, and I really wanted to reposition myself as an investor rather than a founder because I'd been involved on the operator side up to that point. Um, I felt like I needed to invest in a content medium that would help me rebrand on a personal level. And I'd done a podcast before. Um, that was just for fun and I knew how it worked and, and and I thought that would be the right format for me. I think with all content marketing, it comes down to consistency. And so I wanted to pick a format that I knew I could be consistent at. And so that's where Riding Unicorns came from, launched in October 2020 um, with Sir Martin Sorrell, who was, I think, the top paid CEO on the FTSE 100 for over 20 years um, and since then, we've recorded over 150 episodes with amazing guests, many founders of unicorns, lots of other VCs. And really, we try and uncover what it takes to build a high growth venture backed business. I now do it in partnership with Hector, episode one ventures. So it's great having a co-host like him. Um, and it's been great fun. And it's definitely helped me personally to expand my network and become um, better known within the UK VC space. And um, and luckily, it's also a profitable entity now. So um, we, we have sponsors, and we have a, a large enough and highly targeted enough audience to attract sponsorship revenue from uh, brands that want to appeal to our audience. Um, so it's been absolutely amazing to do. And it's one of those things that I expect to be doing 10 years from now. Absolutely. Uh, you should always be doing that you love doing things that you love doing and then you don't feel like working at all. Right. Uh, and like I totally agree with all the points that you mentioned about podcasting, especially uh, in the VC ecosystem, uh, because I strongly believe that this industry is a lot about people, probably a lot more about people than even money. Right. So if you know the right people, you can get in the right networks and things just work out, right? And podcasting is one of that, that form of content marketing wherein you put pe people at the very forefront, right? There are conversations and people can directly listen from them. And I think that's great. Uh, and that's why, uh, that, that's also the reason why I started podcasting and then how, how much I've learned uh, from doing this, uh, talking to people like you and the network that I've built is just amazing, right? Uh, and of course, like there are monetary benefits over time that this can be a profitable entity in itself. 
and but i think the non monetary aspects will always like uh, be far more greater than the monetary aspects of it right what do you think definitely yep yeah definitely that's um i completely agree with that um and it, it it's been great for learning great for networking um and it's been really enjoyable and and that that's really critical absolutely uh, and you mentioned the uk startup ecosystem uh, so can you talk about how the uk startup ecosystem is evolving uh, what's the stage what are the most active sectors there and things like that yeah so i've obviously been only on the investor side since 2020 and in that period we've had probably the um most extreme version of hype market that that has been around ever um and then also a fairly significant correction and and rebalancing process which has also been interesting to experience um when i started investing we were still in the sort of i'd say slight golden era within the uk of open banking and fintech and so there was a lot of opportunity in that space and that's where i personally have made the majority of my investments and probably had the most success as well um so that was a good thing to be part of although um i'm sure that there's a number of companies in the space um not necessarily ones that i've invested in but there there is going to be a big rebalancing of valuations um if they haven't happened already within the next 12 months because um companies will have done internal rounds in the last 12 months uh to try and avoid the market uh you know judging them based on the current situation uh and those internal rounds will will be sort of coming to an end in in terms of how much runway they've given businesses and so um companies will be coming back to the market to raise more money and there will be a number of down rounds to to rebalance them which is uh fine in some ways and very negative in others uh depending on the terms of your last round and i don't mean valuation but i mean more the liquidation preferences um and and overall preferences so if founders become disincentivized to build the business uh you've got a pretty major problem so there's going to be some some more shake out over the next 12 months which is going to be um maybe difficult to see um but on the other hand we're entering a new era of um innovation and hopefully growth which is that the advent of real artificial intelligence is creating a plethora of opportunities um and venture capitalists are probably the most opportunistic <laughs> uh people in the world um we go into fairly speculative businesses and um new trends in the hope that that may then generate a lot of uh economic value that we can uh piggyback on um and artificial intelligence is no different but it's probably um it it's probably got a broader use case it's more of a paradigm shift than a than a than a specific kind of new sector so crypto web3 climate tech probably in the last 24 months have all been like themes that vcs have jumped on um artificial intelligence isn't something we have to jump on it's something that will inherently happen throughout the industry 
and will um, generate incredible returns for a lot of people because the margin improvement within certain companies is going to be vast. Um, and in the technology sector in particular, um, I imagine we will be able to take maximum advantage of that. So it's been a really interesting cycle, uh, probably globally, but within the UK, um, I've seen the heady heights of open banking and fintech 2020, 2021, with a pretty severe correction 2022, a kind of stagnated 2023 so far with, uh, you know, flat rounds or down rounds and ASAs and safe notes and whatever a founder can do to keep the lights on. And then I think uh, once the shakeout has finished from all of that, we will start to see some incredible growth and opportunity within the space, which I'm very excited to be um, around for. Absolutely, totally agree. And talking about trends and these themes that keep keep coming up, like there are like flavors of venture capital, right? Different flavors every year, maybe, right? So this year it seems to be artificial intelligence, right? So when these trends come around, as a VC firm, how do you react to these new trends? Uh, are you like all excited about it? Like a dedicated focus on that area that let's watch what's happening in this space, like closely watch it, watch it, right? Uh, or you are like, okay, let's let's we stick to the thesis more or less, um, but also let's keep an eye on this thing, this new thing that's like super hot right now. Yeah, I think if funds do a complete pivot into a new strategy, I would say that would be quite a big um, warning that they they weren't very happy with the previous strategy. What we've generally done at Portfolio Ventures is to not abandon the original strategy, but be aware of the opportunity. So with the climate tech rush, let's say, over the next couple of months, a uh, couple of years with new funds popping up and, and investing in different technologies, we haven't, in, we haven't added climate tech to our investment thesis. But of course, we've been open to climate tech investments where they cross over and align with our existing strategy. So a good example would be um, a, a company called Connect Earth that we invested in, which sits across the, at the intersection of fintech and climate tech. So in our books, it's a fintech with uh, a product that solves um, a problem within the financial services sector. That problem just so happens to be uh, one around ESG reporting, carbon accounting, etc. So that's how we've kind of approached it. And I think we'll take a similar stance with the AI boom. I don't think we're going to be backing any you know, fundamental from the ground up LLM type businesses. That's large language model for, for anyone listening. Um, what we probably expect is that the majority of the innovation or, or, or the deep tech side of things will be done by tech giants and then there will be services and tools built on top of that, which we can implement at our portfolio companies for them to improve what they're already doing. So they stay focused on their strategy and building a product that solves a problem in a particular sector, but they're using artificial intelligence to improve that product experience, that customer experience, and ultimately their margin. So we tend to take a... Um, an awareness and an inclusion viewpoint rather than a complete redirection when these new themes pop up. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great approach. Uh, like I've had both kinds of perspectives on the podcast wherein guests say that uh, that we strictly stick to the thesis, like no matter what's happening outside, we are just laser focused on the thesis. And then we have also had people who have shifted their thesis uh, for what's happening right now. So it, it's it's like your approach is kind of right in the middle where you're having a focus on the thesis just as it was and also have an eye open for what's happening around, right? So that's great. To add to that a little bit, if you're if you're an emerging fund manager and you're launching something completely new, I think it is important to be very in line with what is popular within the current cycle. Because um, if you were to start an ad tech fund now, um, you wouldn't be particularly successful because there's a lot of other stuff going on. And we can all see that Google, Facebook and Amazon uh, are, are basically dominating ad spend for large brands. Um, if you were to do a fintech fund now, uh, it would be a lot harder than it was four or five years ago. Um, so you do want, if you're an emerging manager, you want to be very conscious of the different hype cycles. Um, as a e- existing manager, um, we want to be aware, but not um, not flippant in how we um, think about our own strategy, because we have made promises to investors that we're going to invest in certain types of businesses and to to disregard that would be negative so it it kind of depends where you are in your process as a as a vc um and so for us it makes sense to take that inclusive but not um inclusive but not complete redirection when it comes to um new new themes and new trends yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. Like em- emerging managers have this opportunity that they can align their thesis to what the LPs are looking for right now because uh, other funds are already like in the middle of investing so they can't completely change the strategy. But if you're co- raising your first fund, then you have this viewpoint Then you can select what are the industries that are hot, what are the industries that LPs are looking to invest in, right? Because VCs also need to align to the LPs thesis in order to get the funds, right? So that's something that they can leverage. So great point there. Uh, and l- let's also talk about uh, when you're making these investments, uh, how are you evaluating these deals on what basis? Uh, and uh, has your evaluation process gotten more stricter uh, given the recent downturn? Any changes in strategy around that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, the way we look at companies is there's a few things we really care about. Obviously, the quality of the team now, that is fairly subjective for a lot of people, and it would be quite hard for me to sit here and explain exactly what that is, but um, you know it when you see it. Um, the other thing is, as part of the team, we always like a core that has engineering experience. So there must be someone in the co-founding team who is CTO or head of engineering and is deploying code as part of the the, the business development. Um that is because of the stage we invest at where a lot of these companies may be pre-product market fit or in the early stages of product market fit. And uh, we're investing more in the product than anything, really. Um, so we want to know that they are competent and capable at shipping product to a high level. Um, beyond that, of course, uh, market size, traction. So how much have they validated? What have they proven? Is it growing? Uh, do they have solid retention metrics? Those are sort of the the numbers side of things. Um, and then 
and then and then we also you know we do care about what who else is investing um that's not to say that we it, it, it's the primary um criteria but it is certainly an important criteria for us because we of our check size which is generally 300 to 500k we're often not leading the round so who is leading the round is an important signal to us as an investor um and we're also a tax efficient fund so we prefer to not follow other tax efficient money we prefer to follow real lpgp structured funds um that are proper vcs that are you know doing very detailed dd that we can then also access and then we can come in alongside with tax efficient money um so those are a few things that that matter to us um and as a partnership there's three of us we 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 all get involved in every investment decision uh we crowdsource a lot of um information from our lp network from customer references uh and from the other investors in the round so um there's a lot of information that's get gets collected for each deal what's probably changed slightly is that those lead vcs are sl- have slowed their deployment um and so that actually is helpful it it just gives us even more time to do even more you know background checks and things like that um to ensure that we're we're going into the best deals possible um at the same time we are a fairly high volume investor we invest in roughly 20 companies a year so um these processes aren't months and months they are they are weeks um but those weeks are spent doing a lot of work to make sure that we're covering off every base and getting comfortable with the deal absolutely thank you for sharing that and uh, you mentioned you your three partners uh, at portfolio ventures so how are you building conviction on a deal and how's the final decision decision getting made it is uh, when all three yeses are there or is it two yeses one no that also works how does that work um i think it it can go through with two yeses one no um but that i i'd say that on the whole we come to a group decision um that we're comfortable with so if someone is really a hard no we definitely shouldn't do this deal then it it wouldn't get through if any of the three partners said that if someone was like i'm not really sure i don't love it but the other two partners absolutely love it um and the the less positive partner can accept what they're saying then it can get through um but it doesn't mean that we all have to be head over heels in love with the deal we just have to have some form of um alignment around it it's also important for portfolio construction how which deals we do um making sure there's no conflict with the rest of our portfolio um making sure that we have breadth across sector stage um uh ideally founder profiles uh although it's not always easy to to do that um so that there are a number of considerations that going go into it and um i think i really enjoy being part of a fairly small team where there are only three voices to 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 build alignment around and it's not a wildly more complex you know process than it needs to be um but usually we build the case over a few weeks building more and more information into the deal card 
um, asking lots of questions. And then by the time it comes to making the final decision, uh, most people should 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 know what we're going to do. Um, that I, when I was a founder, I was I was I had to learn the hard way, but I I learned that you should never go to a board meeting with something that will shock those at the meeting because you will lose control of the meeting very quickly. And my feeling is you should never go to investment committee without really knowing that everyone wants to invest in the deal. Um, if you feel that someone doesn't want to invest in the deal, you should probably have a chat with them before you take it to investment committee um, because you need to understand their concerns so that you don't spend the whole meeting trying to convince that one person, but more that you're you're presenting the final sign-off rather than trying to persuade in that moment. Yeah, I totally agree. That That's, that's a great approach that you have there to work together uh, as a whole. Uh, and uh, let, let's talk about value add. So once you've invested in these companies, uh, how are you like uh, helping these founders and startups succeed? So in that, do you also think that, okay, we are not leading the rounds and let the lead like do most of the work in value add or are you like doing real stuff uh, for the peer portfolio there? Yeah, so this is something that we over-index on massively. So um, although we're not leading, although we're not taking a board seat, we try and position ourselves as the fund that pound for pound will add the most value. So although we may not be the biggest investor in the round, we will hopefully um, add more value for, for the amount that we're putting in versus maybe other investors. So there's a few ways in which we do that. The first is that we have a very strong angel network and our fund is backed by a lot of individuals that have exited businesses, um, been, been founders, been entrepreneurs, or are C-level at top businesses around the world. And so that network is incredibly valuable to founders from a commercial standpoint, but also uh, should they need additional funding, those types of things. We, 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 we bring a very, very strong network as a fund. Um, we do the we do the standard credits packages, which I think almost every fund now offers um, to to try and save money. But w- I think we're probably more systematic about that than than other funds. Um, so we save our companies a, a very high average per per business. Um, and then we have a founder WhatsApp group where all of our founders can chat to each other, and we don't get too involved, but we host it. And we can see the value they're getting from it. Um, Simple questions like, um, how should I structure my commission model with my salespeople? Or um, do do you use in-house or out-house talent agencies? How much do you pay them? Those types of questions are things that founders need to ask each other. And we get a great sense that founders are getting a lot of value from having that and hosting that. And I know that's not commonplace across the industry for funds to have a a group like that. Um, And then we also do things like last week, we hosted a panel on AI and how companies could use it better. And so we had three of the businesses within our portfolio that are using AI, uh, we think the best, and uh, interviewing those, those founders and getting them to explain how they got started, what they did right, what they did wrong, how they're using it today, um, and the impact it's had and the feedback just from that session has been amazing so we try and do a session like that once a month the pre- previous month we did one on sales the month before that we did one on product so we're, we're we're trying to host little things to to help founders which is 
sort of stepping away for an hour from their company, being surrounded by like-minded individuals who are going through similar challenges and really talking through a, a key pain point or a, a key area of their business um, that hopefully we can support with. Um, and then just beyond that, it's just being accessible and responsive and open and good at communicating. So um, when the Silicon Valley Bank it, it situation was going on, uh, we had, I think, five out of 40 companies with some exposure. Three were non-critical, two were critical. So that means they just raised a round and almost all of the money was in a Silicon Valley Bank bank account. Um, and those founders were talking to us at 11 p.m. on Friday night um, and we were the ones reassuring them and spending time with them and um, making sure they were okay and reassuring them. And And by Monday, luckily, everything was okay because the HSBC deal went through and um, their their funds were were accessible again. But those little moments are the bits that I think are the most important is when a founder feels like they're all on their own and the world is against them. Um, that's when you really need to be there. And I say that from experience of being on the other side of the table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those those maybe two or three days were really, really terrible for all the founders who were impacted, uh, and even the VCs who had invested in those companies. Right, glad we, that all sorted out. But yeah, that was really tough time. And yeah, the real VCs are the ones who stand by their founders in these really tough times. Right. So great that you helped them out in that time. Um, and l- let's talk about uh, your favorite investments today. Do you have? Uh, like some companies that uh, are really exciting to you personally that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. So um, from my first fund, there's a business called Timeit, which is a credit card and um, yeah, credit management app and uh, and card. And they've just grown amazingly since we invested. Um, I'm obviously no longer part of the fund that led the deal, but I still am a shareholder via my general partner commitment in the fund and they've just done incredibly well I think more than 10x their revenue since we invested and it's it's just exciting to be part of a journey like that um so we're, we're super hopeful that they will continue that growth and um and there will be a good outcome for for all of the investors in that fund uh and I include myself in that um but the team have just been you know brilliant in executing so uh for, they deserve all the credit and then um, now more recently, uh, there's a company called Yasso, which we invested in uh, at Portfolio Ventures. Um, and they help um, brands in the UK to sell in China. And the Chinese e-commerce market is what is 52% of the global markets. So if you're not selling in China, you're actually missing out on half of your online market. And it's incredibly complex and most most western brands do not know how to sell into that market or how the social shopping apps work um and so the model that yasso are building is incredibly effective incredibly efficient but what i also like about it is they don't need thousands of brands to work with in order to be successful they just need four or five brands that they go really deep with and generate a lot of revenue with. 
Um, and so I feel that there was some uh, perceived risk from other investors that, uh, or you don't, you don't touch China or you, you don't want to get involved in something that you can't control. What happens if the Chinese government take away their license or things like that? And I kind of embrace that risk because that that's an opportunity for us to get involved. Um, and the the upside is so massive. So from a venture perspective, when you're building a portfolio of 20 businesses, you need those types of companies in there because those are probably the ones that um, actually end up doing the best. So it's very early, but the, the founding team is exceptional. They all speak Chinese, even though they're all English. Um, and so they're in a kind of unique position to execute on this vision. And um, I'm really excited about them and what they're doing. And I hope they'll be very successful. Absolutely. That sounds great. Uh, and thanks for sharing those. Uh, and now moving on to my last main question before we move on to the rapid fire round. Uh, and this one is about what's your biggest learning investing in startups over the years? So my biggest learning is probably that, well, there's a couple. I I, I want to try and say something that is 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 really useful to the audience. Um, so I'm going to say two. The first one is probably my biggest learning, but may not actually be that useful, um, which is that uh, at the end of 2021, there were a few very experienced venture capitalists that I knew in the industry that started to suggest that we were at the top of the market, that th this was getting out of hand and that minting two unicorns every day was just absurd and that we were probably not far away from a massive correction. Now, I don't think they stopped deploying, so they may not have been um, following that instinct, but there was definitely more chatter from more experienced people than than I'd noticed up to that point. I think there were a few people that were like, oh, it's been a very long bull market and this is kind of crazy. But then I don't think many people recognized the top. And uh, suddenly within a month's period, there were five or six very experienced people that I hugely respect that were really quite confident that this was the top. Um, and so that was a huge learning to 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 witness and then experience. And uh, hopefully that will serve me well in a future downturn um, when I, I start to notice some of those signals. Um, you'll always have the odd person saying this market's not right. Um, it's not those people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the really experienced ones who have seen it before and who can actually almost back up their their opinion with data. Um, so that was probably something that I personally will take away. But more generally, um, I would say that um, uh, companies that can generate revenue quickly um, in a market that may not seem that big um, will probably end up doing better than companies that take a very long, slow approach to what is a very big market. And the reason for that is that the the promise of something like, I don't know, let's just pick a, a growth theme like virtual reality, you know, all of the Gartner reports and everything will tell you that uh, XR, VR, AR, um, metaverse 
is going to be a huge, huge market and that gaming is um, the biggest entertainment source for people under 50 and all of those things. And that all sounds great. But to actually create something of value within that market that you can generate revenue from in the next three years is very, very difficult. Um, And you may end up burning through a lot of money before you get anything that you can actually sell. On the flip side, if you can get a company that is in a um, still a large market, but maybe not the sexiest market in the world, but they can generate revenue quickly, they can build relationships with customers that are very profitable, and then they have the tech and product expertise to continue to innovate and add new services that they can charge more money for, I think you can end up with a better outcome. Um, so that has probably changed the way I view certain businesses, certain sectors, because um, I'm in this for returns. I'm not in this to invest in something that is, um, you know, very hype led or, or, or sexy um, that maybe will do well at raising, um, but ultimately creates no economic value. I am in it to back companies that uh, are genuine, genu- genuinely going to dominate a sector and they can do that quickly with uh, the the product they have today and then there's a lot of opportunity to build on top of that. I think that's one of the learnings I've had is to to not every not all market size is created equal is probably how I'd summarize it. Yeah, that's that, that's a great learning that you've shared there. So for founders like the focus should be on revenue generating businesses, especially right now that there's not so much funding going around. Not everyone is getting funded. So you want to focus on getting the money in organically as much as possible and then top it off with external capital to scale it further. So that should be the approach uh, that you should be taking, uh, especially amid downturns and even in general so that you're immune to such downturns whenever they come, right? Yeah. All right. So now let's move on to the rapid fire round wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund. And you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So the first one goes, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? We invest in the UK, in fintech, in tech, and SaaS predominantly. Great. And what's the typical stage of investment? We invest from pre-seed up to series A. What's the typical check size? Usually 300 to 500,000 pounds. Great. And where can founders apply for funding in case there is a direct way? They can either email me, which is jp at portfolio.ventures, and this is also on my LinkedIn, um, or they can submit through our website. Great. Uh, Last one, where can our listeners follow you? The best place is probably on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty active. I post frequently content and updates and also uh, about my own podcast. Um, So that's the best place to, to connect with me. Absolutely. I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below and even to the podcast so that our listeners can go check that out. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on, James. It was a pleasure hosting you and happy investing. Thank you so much. It's been great to be on the show.